We are continuing in Ephesians tonight, and in Ephesians chapter 2, three weeks that we've been in, counting tonight, three weeks that we've been in the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2, and we'll wrap up that section tonight, and next week we'll move into uh, the second half of the chapter. Paul kind of changes gears in a couple of ways in the second half of the chapter, but Tonight, I want to read this whole section that we've been in because it all fits together, but we're going to be spending, giving our focus to verses 7 and 10, if you want to pay extra attention to what he says there. Paul writes, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom... We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I went to Texas A&M like a lot of you, not all of you, but a lot of you, and graduated in 1997. At the very beginning of my sophomore year, I met a girl and fell head over heels for her. We dated three years, all the way through college from that point forward, and the beginning of the second semester of our senior year, we got engaged, because when you've been dating someone for two and a half years in college, you get engaged. Um, This person was not Amy, and uh, that engagement lasted for a time, but not forever, and I'm thankful for that. She's a wonderful person, but we're both, I think, glad that we're not married to one another, and uh, but, but one thing that happened in the course of that relationship is uh, as she was getting to know me and getting to know things that I liked and things that I enjoyed and things that might make me happy, I was into music, I worked uh, selling music, I had friends who were musicians, and so at some point, I'm pretty sure for my birthday, she gave me a guitar. And uh, with this guitar was a note that she had made, uh, a card that she had made, and I remember distinctly it said, sing me a song with your new, with a, she drew a cute little picture of a guitar. Um, and uh, we, we, I don't know, we had probably been dating about a year or so when this happened, um, and uh, in fairness to her, the Enneagram had not come to the Bible Belt yet, so did she did not know she had cast her lot with an Enneagram 5, and the odds of me ever singing her a song uh, were very, very, very low. I once sang a solo for one verse of Amy Grant's Thy Word in Youth Choir, and that was it for me, solo singing. I sing just fine when everybody else is singing. I don't have any interest in singing to anyone or singing by myself. Uh, I also didn't know how to play a single chord 
chord on the guitar, and though the idea was appealing, because it's appealing to every uh, boy who's in college to play the guitar, um, I was a little intimidated by this gift, because for me, this gift represented enormous pressure. Um, already there was one expectation that, that I knew was not going to be fulfilled, which was me singing her song, right? But now the base expectation when someone gives you a guitar is that you're going to learn how to play the guitar. Um, and it wasn't at that point really the top of my list of priorities to learn an instrument. Uh, I perceived myself as all college people do to be extraordinarily busy, um, and stressed out. And so this just felt like something else I had to figure out to do. She also, along with the guitar, gave me kind of a basic, here's how to teach yourself guitar book and a book of all things, um, an Eagles song book. And I love the Eagles, which I'm sure is why she bought that. But if you know anything about the Eagles, um, some of the best guitar players to ever live, uh, were in the Eagles and I'm not going to be playing Joe Walsh guitar solos anytime soon. I can promise you that. Um, and so uh, the whole thing was a little bit of a small disaster. Occasionally there would be questions of, have you started learning how to play yet? Um, so it was supposed to be a gift and it was just pressure. Um, not her fault. It was all about me. I still uh, don't know how to play the guitar and no longer own that guitar. Um, but what was supposed to be something given to me that I would enjoy, for me, just felt like stress. It just felt like pressure, like an expectation that I wouldn't be able to fulfill. And I think when we get into these places where the scriptures talk to us about good works, about the kind of life that we're supposed to live, that gives God joy, that makes a difference in the world, it sometimes feels like someone giving us an instrument that we're not sure, we already know for sure we can't play, and we're not sure that we can ever play in a way that's going to fulfill the expectation that came with the gift. I think that's a little bit of how we tend to encounter these passages. So I want to see if we can look at that, that a little bit differently tonight um, and figure out what's the, uh, the missing element that takes what God says he's giving us, which is a life that will be marked by good works, marked by works for his kingdom, and receive that as a gift instead of just receiving it as pressure. Uh, from this whole passage, we've sort of looked at a couple of questions already. Where did we come from? What kind of life were we in before God reached down and saved us? And then last week, we talked about what God did for us, that by a sheer act of grace, when we were dead, though physically alive, dead in our spirits, God came to us and gave us a new kind of life and seated us, Paul says, alongside Jesus with a new kind of authority and function in the world spiritually. And that's what he's done for us as a gift. And then tonight, I want us to ask the question, why did God do what he did and what will he do with us now that he has given us that life and now that he saved us? So like I said, I want to focus on verses 7 and verse 10. So just to remember what Paul's saying, he's saying he has given us new life and raised us up with him and seated us with him, Jesus, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And this is what he says in 7 and 10. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And then down in verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So he has raised us up, he's given us new life, and he has seated us, Paul says, in this spiritual way next to Jesus, and, and in doing so, given us a real kind of new life, a real kind of new authority spiritually. Now he tells us why. He has done that so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So I want to talk for a couple of minutes about, as best we can tell, what Paul means when he says that God has done that so that he can show something. Because I tend to read these words in a pretty individualistic way, and different translations lend themselves to making that easier. It's not a fault of the translation. It's the lenses that we're reading it through. But the verb show here, when, when Paul says God has done this so that he can show something, that, that the word behind the English word show is a lot more public than it may seem. Paul is saying that God has raised you to new life and seated you next to Jesus so that he can show all of creation the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. Most literal translations, the more literal the translation is, the more likely you are to get a word instead of show to get a word like display or demonstrate or even prove that God has, has saved us so that he can prove, so that he can display to all of creation his grace. And I tend to read it, I tend to read the phrasing this way, so that in the coming ages he might show his grace and kindness toward us. And that's true enough. He's going to, in the coming ages, continue to show us his grace and kindness. But the construction of the sentence and the meaning of that verb is not primarily pointing to God has saved us so that he can show us individually his grace. It is primarily pointing to the idea that he, can, he has saved us so that he can put on display his grace in the way that he has showed it, shown it to us through his kindness. Does that, does that distinction make a little bit of sense? Um, he, he has, uh, he wants to show the world the immeasurable riches of his grace by the kindness that he has shown us in Jesus. In other words, you, me, we have been saved and brought into Christ, that phrase that Scott pointed out in Ephesians chapter 1 that pops up again and again, even so far in Ephesians chapter 2, we have been saved and brought into Christ so that God can show the whole world the beauty of his grace. You can see this a little bit more clearly. I'll show you just a couple of other translations of verse 7. The voice translates, translates it this way. He did this for a reason, so that for all eternity we will stand as a living testimony to the incredible riches of his grace and kindness that he freely gives to us by uniting us with Jesus the anointed. The Passion Translation translates it this way. Throughout the coming ages, we will be the visible display of the infinite, limitless riches of his grace and kindness, which was showered upon us in Christ Jesus. So if we put that together, if we put all this together, God saves us so that as we receive these deep riches of his grace and his kindness, 
so that he can show, so that he can display, so that he can demonstrate and prove to all of creation the depth of his goodness and grace, of himself, so that he can show who he is by pointing to his new life, by pointing to his grace alive and at work in all of us. Now, you, of course, have been saved so that you won't shoulder for all eternity the natural consequence of your sin. You've been saved so that your sin is forgiven. You've been saved so that you can be alive with God for all eternity. Yes, to all of that. But all of that is not just for you. It was given as a gift to you. You were chosen when you got that kind of forgiveness so that God can show all of... uh, The scriptures actually tell us so that he can show all of heaven and earth. Uh, I actually, I think, had on the screen last week, Ephesians 3.10 where Paul says in the way that he's working out his grace in the church, he's actually proving to all of the spiritual realm that he's king as well. So he has saved us, the things that he has done for us. He is showing all of heaven and earth exactly who he is by saying, look, look what happens when I show my love, when I put my love into women, into men, into college students, into high school students or junior high students, into children. Look what happens. This is what Paul is telling us, is the reason for the grace that we've been given. So God can point to it in us and show all of creation what it looks like. Paul This is clearly the understanding he has about his own salvation. When he writes to Timothy, he says, I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, and by that he means the person who most needed God's mercy, in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God has given us, given individual Christians and moreover given the church not only the right, but the created purpose to take God's character and God's cause public. To take what he has done for us and make a public spectacle of it. The notion that is sort of embedded in our culture and some of our religious culture that our faith can be private runs completely counter to what Paul says is the reason that we've been given faith at all. We have faith because before we ever existed, Paul's clear about that in this book, that God set all this up before we were even born. We have faith because before we ever existed, God made us to to, to both receive and to share his goodness and grace. It's all tied together. There's no privatizing part of this just for our benefit. Every one of us who knows about God's goodness, every one of us who knows about his, not just his goodness, but his kingship, his authority, is a witness to who God is and to what God wants to do for everyone we know. Every one of us who has been saved is a witness, has experienced personally what God wants to do for everyone we know and all of creation. And we were created and we were saved to join him in that mission. This this is the heart of of verse 7 here. It's the essence of the why, the particular why we have been saved that Paul is talking about here in Ephesians 2. 
is so that we will be a visible display of who God is and how he loves and, and shows grace. Okay? So, if we, we can accept that, we can take hold of that and say, okay, I've been, I've been saved for that purpose, but the question remains, what do we do with that? What does that mean for us? How, does, how do I embrace that and live my life in a way that, that I am seeing my salvation play through my life in, in a way that it's a display to the world of God's goodness and grace? So, go to verse 10 with me. Paul writes this, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So this is, this is the like quick Paul answer to that question, how do, how do we do this? Well, we've been made by God, and we've been made for good works. And Paul says, good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And here is the gift, this life of good works, which Paul describes here as a gift, as something that we've been made for, as something that was made for us uh, from the beginning. Here is the gift that starts to feel like pressure if we get it wrong. This is where I think we often get re-entangled in some sort of works-based Christianity where we get stuck in a cycle of either trying to prove that we're really saved, that we're really sincere in our faith, and we really do love God, and we try to prove that by doing all the right things, or we swing to the other end of the, uh, of the spectrum and we get overrun by guilt and disillusionment that we aren't doing enough good things, so maybe we don't love God, and if all these years of trying, I don't really love God, maybe God's not even real. So, I mean, some of you know what I'm talking about. A lot of you, I think, know this cycle that we can get stuck in when we start reading about good works that we were made for, and instead of understanding that that is a gift it starts to feel like pressure. But the gospel tells us unequivocally that Jesus always carries the load. So if at any point when I'm, starting to, when I'm trying to understand either how I'm saved or what happens in me or through me when I'm saved, if at any point in that I start to feel like this is the load that I have to carry, the gospel has gotten lost somewhere because the gospel says Jesus always carries the load. And we are saved not just once, but we are made alive. We are given new life by God and not by our own effort. So living the life that God intended, this life of good works that Paul describes here, can't be just a load on our shoulders. And I think that good news, I think the gospel is absolutely clear here in this verse, in verse 10, a verse that has been leveraged, uh, right or wrong, or, or, or intentionally or not intentionally, a verse that has been leveraged often um, to, to sort of perpetuate a works and a behavior-based Christianity. Any use of this verse that pushes you further in that direction is a lie, is an incorrect use of that verse. Because I think the words that Paul uses here tell us two things really clearly. The first thing is that we are created for good works. We were made for this. We are created by God in Christ for good works. It's why we exist. So whatever good works Paul is referring to here, we're made for them. It's, it's, it's how we were recreated in our salvation was to do these things. They are not so foreign or so difficult for us that we have to conjure up some kind of strength or power of our own to do God-type things. 
It's just the stuff that we were made for. In fact, Paul says we were created in Christ Jesus for them. We weren't just sort of made for them and cast into the world. We were created in Christ Jesus for them. And he's already told us repeatedly that after we're saved, we're in Christ. So we have the actual power of Jesus in us to do the works that God has for us. It's his strength. It's his life. It's his power that enables us to do the things that make us the living display of who God is and what he does. Later on in Ephesians, Paul's going to tell us, you've heard about him and we're taught in him to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. We've had a reference to this, that we've been given a new life, and he's going to spend a lot of Ephesians sort of showing us what that new life looks like. In Ephesians 4, he refers to it as a new self, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This is what the new life is. It is for these works. When he says in true righteousness and holiness. It means we've been made for this. We've been remade for this. And and, and verse 10 in Ephesians 2 concludes with, we were created for good works, and then he goes on to say, we were created that we should walk in them. We were made to do these things, to walk in a daily way in these works. These good works are the life most consistent, Paul is saying, with who we are in Jesus. Our new creation, our new creature, our new selves exists for these works. It's, it's actually when we go back to trying to pull that new creation back to doing some other kind of life, settling for the other things that Paul refers to in the first three verses of Ephesians 2, that things go haywire. This is, once we're recreated, the more natural way of living for us. The second thing that I think is clear in what Paul says in verse 10, not only were we created for good works, but the good works themselves were created by God before we ever do them. It's not only our task to mount the strength on our, it's, it's, I don't, sorry, it's not only not our task to mount the strength to do these works on our own, we're also not on some wild goose chase to figure out what they are to figure out what kind of life God wants us to live, what kinds of things he wants us to do. Scott got into this a little bit in Ephesians chapter 1, and we've seen some reference to it a little bit here in Ephesians chapter 2. But if there is any meaning at all, if the language in the scriptures and the language that Paul uses here in Ephesians about things that God has done or determined before we even live, if there's any meaning in that at all, and you can't read the scriptures, I don't think, and conclude that there's no meaning in it. We can fight and have fought for hundreds of years over what it means, But if there's any truth to the fact that before we existed, God did these things, did some of these things, included in that, based on what Paul is telling us here in verse 10, included in what he did are the works that he wants us to do. He created them, Paul says, in the beginning for us. This is good news. This is not like some deep, theological mystery that we now have to say, I can't understand that, or we have to argue about what it means. It's very simple. It's good news because we tend to fret over whether we're going to do the right things or not. 
when Paul tells us that God has already prepared the work for us. He's actually created the work and we're recipients of it. We are not now overburdened inventors being asked to create it. We're not getting a card from God that says, sing me a song on your new God draws a picture of a guitar. That's not what this note is, but it feels that way to us sometimes. I don't know how to sing a song. I don't know how to play a song. Paul's telling us, first of all, you're Joe Walsh. God made you to play the guitar. That's what he's telling us. Whatever the works are for us, God made you. You've been around people, right? And you see them do what they do and you go, I don't know how this person could have ever, you see athletes or you see uh, artists. Um, Last week, Aiden and I got really cheap last minute tickets to go see Sean McConnell and Need to Breathe. I'm a big Sean McConnell fan. He was the opener. I was there to see the opener. Apparently Need to Breathe is a big deal. Um, And and whatever you think about them, there's this, the lead singer is a guy named Bear. Come on, first of all. Uh, But when he opens his mouth, you're like, This guy couldn't have done anything but be a rock singer. I mean, I wonder what it was like the first time he opened his mouth and that sound came out because it would be a sin for him not to be singing rock and roll songs, whether you like their songs or not. You know what that's like when you experience something like that. This is what Paul is saying to us. The good works that are out there for you, you were made to do them. And by the way, I've already written the songs. You just have to play them. That's the essence of what we're being told here about our purpose and about the things that we will do in God's provision for them. That doesn't mean that we've all been given exact instructions of what to do today. I'm not trying to oversimplify this. But the good works of the kingdom that reveal who God is, the things that we're supposed to be spending our days on and so supposed to be spending our lives on, are found... This is how we find them. God has made them for us. This is how we find them. They're found by those who are spending their days and therefore their lives in Christ. Who believe that they've been put in Christ and given new life in Christ and dwell there. Paul says it pretty clearly in Romans 12 when he tells you, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is what it means to recognize that God is who he says he is and that he has given you new life to give your whole self to him. And then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern What is the will of God? What is good and acceptable and perfect? In Ephesians 5, he says something similar. He tells us to walk in the light and the fruit of the light is all that is good and right and true. That's where we'll know what pleases God is walking in the light. What kinds of things God has created us to do and to display in order to display his goodness in our lives. We find them by dwelling with him, by walking in the light. We've been told and we claim to believe that we've been given new life. The Spirit has given us new life. And when the Spirit gives us new life, the Spirit activates in us the desire and the capacity to live in the light and to discover and embrace the life that God made us to live. 
And if the Spirit has given us that life, if we live by the Spirit, Paul says, then we should walk in the Spirit. If the Spirit has given us new life, we should let the Spirit guide us into what is good and what is true and what is right. This is God's purpose for your life. This is why you were saved. To dwell with Him and to learn what it means to receive this gift of the good things that he has made for you to do. He's made you for them, and he's made them for you. Paul spells it out in a sort of more intentionally missional way in 2 Corinthians 5 when he tells us this. All of this, all of us being made alive, um, is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is another phrasing, a more sort of explicitly missional phrasing of the same idea that we get in Ephesians chapter 2. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, here's what we are. Here's why we've been saved. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. I want to close by trying to bring that down, trying to bring these these ideas and this challenge from Paul down uh, to us in a couple of specific ways. Uh, Because it's one thing to sort of theoretically say, yeah, that's all, that all seems true. It's another thing to start trying to figure out what is it, What does it mean for our life? And so the first thing I want to say is this. This is very general, but I I want to be clear about what I mean by it. There's something good for you and for us. God has made us for some specific good works. And he has made some specific good works for you and for us. And I say that as broad as it may seem, because I think it's a challenge for us sometimes to really take hold of that and really believe that I have a purpose in this, that God thought of me as part of his mission in reconciling the world. And the scriptures couldn't be clearer. We are not aimless. We in this room are not aimless or without purpose or opportunity to do God-shaped and God-sized things with our lives. We are alive, in fact, for that very purpose. There is something for you. There is something for us in the good works that God has created to point the world to who he is. And the second thing I want to say is that you have access to what you need for it. We have access to what we need for whatever those good things are. Are. We are not impoverished by the power of the Spirit. We have what we need. We have access to what we need to fulfill our role as ambassadors of reconciliation. The scriptures say it clearly. His power, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, for the life in God that we were made for. This does not mean that the works that he's prepared for you, the works that he prepared for us, will always make the news. 
This is not uh, just sort of some Christianized version of the world's obsession with following your dreams or do something really big for the world. It's not even do something really big for God. That Yes, the challenge is there is something something meaningful and something divine for each of us to do in God's mission. But that doesn't always mean it will be a big thing. It, what, I, what it is, I hope, is a widening of our horizons and understanding that God is doing something big and that he's given all of us a part in it. And discovering our part means embracing this new life that we've been given. It means walking often quietly, often faithfully, often patiently in the light by the Spirit. And it means being ready to say yes and to follow him in the good things that he has for you and in the good things that he has for us. So I want us to think this week I'm going to put these questions on the screen. You can take a picture of them if you want. We'll send them to comm group leaders so you'll see them in your email this week as well. But I want us to think about a few questions this week. How do your daily choices to walk in the light or not impact your sense of purpose and participation in God's kingdom mission? And and I just, the, the only clarification I want to make about any of these questions is this. When, I, when I'm asking to walk in our choices to walk in the light or not, I don't necessarily just mean our choices to walk in the light or walk in obvious darkness. It is often, I think more often for us, a choice between intentionally walking in the light and apathy. This sort of vague unbelief that God has made you today for the good works that he prepared for you and the choice to put yourself on the path toward those things. That's what I mean by the choice between walking in the light or not. What are the good works you know God prepared for you? The things that you already know God has made you for at home, at school, at work, in this church? And and ask that question for us as a church. What are the good works we know God has prepared for us as a community of faith? And then finally, how can we have clearer eyes to see other good works that we haven't yet discovered, but that he has already created for us individually and as a church? Pray with me.